Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates, your host for this edition of the Women and Manufacturing Podcast. I am the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back manufacturing or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain management consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where I help clients with global supply chain projects and also where I do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in manufacturing and ask them to share their experiences. As we look across the broad landscape of manufacturing from the shop floor to the C-suite and the expansive jobs and careers that support manufacturing, we're looking for insights from exceptional and brilliant women leaders. Today, we're going to focus on innovation in manufacturing, a topic that should be near and dear to everyone's heart. And I'm so pleased to introduce my guest, Kimberly Weasling of Weasling Consulting. Kimberly is known throughout Silicon Valley and worldwide as the guru of innovation. I met Kimberly about 10 years ago through our book publisher here in Silicon Valley, and since then we've attended many events together and have become friends. Kimberly is an extraordinary networker, often bringing together people to work together as consultants or on projects. She's a brilliant physicist by training and respected by her manufacturing clients worldwide. So welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for having me, Rosemary. I've learned so much from you, and I'm looking forward to more shared adventures. Great. I'm sure there'll be lots of them. Kimberly, let's start off by, can you tell us about your professional background and education? Yes, I had a weird path. I actually studied physics and chemistry as an undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school in physics got a master's degree in physics studying surface analysis using really cool big equipment with very high vacuum and all kinds of complexity. Okay. Yeah, so you worked for HP also for a while, right? Well, after I graduated, I thought, well, what am I going to do? A physicist? Not very employable, especially without having a PhD or going into academia. Fortunately, Hewlett-Packard had an analytical products group at that time, which has since been split out into a company called Agilent. And they were hiring repair people to go into the field and repair complex instrumentation, similar to the kinds of things I had worked on in my graduate degree. So I got a job as one of the first lady repairmen of Hewlett-Packard's <laughs> analytical group. They really called us that, the lady repairmen. At least my clients would say, look, she's going to use wrenches. <laughs> That's so great. Then I, yeah. Yeah, be, just before that, too, you were in the military as well, right? Oh, yes. Well, that's how I paid for college. Right out of high school, I went into the Air Force, and I repaired electronics equipment on F-4 jets and OV-10 helicopters, OV-10 planes and helicopters and things like that. And, yeah, I learned a lot about repairing electronics, which also helped me get my job at HP. Okay. And then after HP, what happened after well, that? Well, okay. I spent 10 years at HP having seven different jobs. So I was a job hopper inside of HP. So after repairing instruments for three years in the field, I said, why don't I go back to the factory and fix them all rather than fixing them one by one? Because I was aware of design problems and usability issues. So I went and got a job in manufacturing engineering, helping to manufacture mass spectrometers. And when I moved into the Silicon Valley location for this 
organization, I found out, oh my gosh, it was taking 35 days for a mass spectrometer to be assembled, tested, and shipped. And I was like, what? Wow. Because the turn-on rate was zero, zero percent turn-on rate. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I started what, working on that. that and... Just for those of us who don't know or are not physicists, what is a mass spectrometer? Oh, yeah. Well, you put the chemical into it, and it crushes it up by bombarding it with beam of electrons. And then you can tell what kind of molecule it is. So you crush up the molecule, you shoot it down this tube that helps analyze the molecular weight of the pieces. You look at the fingerprint of these pieces, and the fingerprint is very unique. And you can tell whether it is a pesticide or cocaine or some kind of other pollutant or other product that you're looking for, like in a pharmaceutical industry. So chemical analysis becomes extraordinarily easy using mass specs, especially when you want to know exactly what is this chemical that I put into this device. Gotcha. Okay, so then, then what FP? What happened next? Well, I just couldn't get myself out of HP. I actually quit there twice. <laughs> <laughs> I was really struggling with the manufacturing side of things, and I, I, I went into R&D in Hewlett-Packard, and I said, why don't we redesign these things so that they're actually easy to use, easy to build, and test and ship within a few days? And so they put me in charge of the R&D product development for these mass specs for the next generation because I complained about the product development. They said, well, why don't you lead it? I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> we were able to introduce the next generation into manufacturing using concurrent engineering practices where the manufacturing people came up to R&D and built the projects that we were, they built the prototypes and the, the manufacturing procurement people ordered the parts that we were using for the prototypes. So you know, procurement and manufacturing was involved all along the product development process. So when we finally got it down to production, we could build it, test it, and ship it in five days. So that was pretty wow. big savings over the 35 days, you know, not just for my work, but all of the whole team that worked together to make that happen. And I was just thrilled. And so, you know, but I still I struggled, you know, do I really want to be working at Hewlett Packard here? I'm living in the Silicon Valley where there's startups and exciting things happening. So I quit Hewlett Packard to join the startup world and ultimately ended up being part of three failed startups. <laughs> that was very exciting. <laughs> well, that, that's kind of the thing in Silicon Valley. you got to fail a few times, right? I mean, sort of well, encouraged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, okay. we don't call it failure. We call it a prototype. We call it an experiment. So every time I failed, the company would fail and collapse or lay me off. I would get a better job with a higher title and making more salary. So I didn't really have a problem with that because at the time it was the boom time, but then there was the dot-com bust. So that was yeah. a big reckoning for me. You know, how was yeah. that impacting you? Yeah, me too. I, yes, me too. And I was also an HP employee early on in my career. But yeah, the ah. dot-com era was just the turning point, I think, for a lot of us. So is yeah. that when you started Weefling Consulting? Yes, I decided to start it February 1st, 2001 in the worst possible economy since the 80s. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, hey, it'll take me a year to get things going. And now when I hear that people are starting their own businesses, I tell them, yeah, the first five years are the hardest. Yeah, really true. Absolutely true. So tell us about Weefling Consulting and what, what kind of work do you do there? 
Well, after lurching fitfully this way and that for a few years, I ended up running into my life's purpose, which was Japanese companies that are globalizing. I know you do a lot of work in Asia, so you know about what's going on in Japan. I'm sure the economy is flat and the population is shrinking. And if you're a company in Japan and you want to grow your business, you got to grow outside of Japan. So I ran into my agent in Tokyo who was working with over a thousand Japanese companies teaching them English. And they realized they learned English, but they still didn't have the skills they needed to be successful in the global business environment. So I started providing leadership, team effectiveness, innovation, creativity, design thinking, and pulled a whole bunch of other people along with me from Silicon Valley to help give them the Silicon Valley mindset, you know, approach to innovation and breakthroughs that they needed to expand their business overseas and grow their revenues. And it's interesting that I think not just the Japanese culture, but throughout Asia, I've found also, and I've worked in Korea and in Malaysia and, of course, in China a lot, that creative thinking and innovative thinking is really difficult. And do you have any idea why that might be? They just don't seem to get it. They have to be taught that skill. Well, in Japan, for example, where I've been over 100 times over the past 14 years, in Japan, failure is fatal. You know, if you have a failure in the U.S., it's kind of embarrassing or it's not fun. But in Japan, you know, you have to slice your stomach open with a big sword and kill yourself. So <laughs> it's kind oh. of accompanied by a whole lot of shame. And there's an absolute obsession with perfectionism, which, by the way, serves them very well in many fields where their perfectionism has brought them the reputation of the best quality in the world. But it doesn't mm-hmm. serve so well if you're trying to be innovative because you're not allowed to make mistakes. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I know in, in, in China, at least not so much in the last five years or so, but prior to that, because in school children are taught to memorize and then repeat, they're not really encouraged to have creative thinking. It's much more regimented in a way, and so they don't grow up with that and then have to be sort of taught or encouraged that skill along the way. There are other cultural influences as well that go along with it, but, you know, in China, I think that's the basic problem. You know, I have to blame Deming for all of this because when I was growing up as a kid, if I saw something was made in Japan, it meant the poorest quality in the world. But, boy, by the time I was an adult, Made in Japan was associated with the best quality on planet Earth. And a lot of it was thanks to the Deming Revolution, where he did the total quality systems. And he and Short helped with manufacturing systems become super obsessed with generating reproducible, perfect results. And that comes with a price. If you can't make mistakes and you aren't allowed to fail, then you cannot innovate very easily. Or you can acquire innovation. I mean, a lot of big companies in the West have figured out once they get to a certain size, they can't tolerate the failure rates required of true innovation. So they just grow by and innovate by acquisition. Hmm. Very interesting. So you, in the process of doing all this work worldwide for, because the Japanese companies are not just simply regimented to Japan, you have to travel all over the world, right? You've seen a lot of factories, but what kind of factories have you seen and what was remarkable about them? Well, I have gone to factories, a lot of factories that make polymers, factories that make baby diapers, factories that are making beer, 
I've been really thrilled to go and see the machines in action because I'm a scientist and a techno nerd geek and I love to see how it's all made. <laughs> What's amazing to me is how few people there are in the factories. I mean, I walk through the factories and say, where are all the factory workers? Well, they're all sitting in a little room called the control room, watching everything on monitors and big dashboards. And sensors are telling them what's going on all over the factory. Yeah, that's really interesting, too, because a lot of times we talk about in supply chain and in manufacturing conferences and with clients that the kind of jobs that you need for factories these days are no longer sort of blue-collar jobs. They're what we call new-collar jobs. And that's a sort of a crossover between engineering skills and, and assembly skills. So you, factory workers need to learn how to run the robot, not how to, you know, put pegs and squares and into boxes. So it's, oh, a, it's a new skill set. Yeah, it's a new skill set. And it's not exactly engineering, but it, it is the use of technology overlaid onto an assembly floor. And that requires extra training, and typically those jobs pay better, and you can see it's evolving. And so the, you know, the hands-on kind of manufacturing is relegated to low-cost countries, low-cost environments, and the growth of those mm -hmm. places around the world. And then the more advanced manufacturing is moving into more first-world countries. Yeah, and actually one of my clients is one of the world's foremost factory automation companies, I can't say the name of it, but they make vision systems and microscopes and all kinds of laser markers and things. So everything is so high tech in the manufacturing environment that you're right. We need people who can understand and use technology to make the tough decisions that humans still need to make. And frequently that is a team effort, not just one person making a decision. So you need to have communication skills, problem solving, decision making so that you can do things together that would be impossible for anyone to do alone. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I recently toured the Tesla factory here in Silicon Valley, and you ride around in a little cart, like a, a train of carts, and you could go through the manufacturing shop floor, and there are no people there, essentially. You know, every once in a while you'll spot somebody walking down the aisle, but by and large, everything is done via robots. And you're right, they're in a control room somewhere, and they're controlling yeah. what happens from far away, you know. So it's a completely different yeah. kind of manufacturing concept. Okay. Well, I, I toured the Numi plant long ago when it was in Silicon Valley, and I also was working with Mazda back in 2008, and I took a tour of the Mazda plant out in Japan, and there were still people manually working. The cool thing about Japanese factory for Mazda, for example, is that no matter what job you had there, you started off working in production. So one of the executives that I was working with in our global leadership development program actually had to work on the shop floor, helping to build cars and work his way through the various functions so that he could have a true understanding of what it took to get the job done, which I was very impressed with. Yeah, that's very cool. So, Kimberly, you also run an organization called Silicon Valley Alliances. Can you tell us about that and why it's an important new model? Yeah, I'm so lucky. I kind of stumbled onto the fact that working by myself, yeah, I'm smart and I'm good, but I'm not as good as a team. And so thanks to the collaboration of my Tokyo agent, we started putting two consultants in the room for all of our workshops. 
which I actually should say they're not really workshops so much as workshops, learning labs where people are shocked into changing the things that they need to change in order to help their company survive and thrive. So then I realized working together in the same room with another experienced professional, I learned so much. I increased my own value for my client and for future clients. And it was such a rich experience that I decided to do all my work in partnership with other trusted professionals. So then over the years, I decided why not create our own collaboration? We called it Silicon Valley Alliances. I'm one of the co-founders and I sure would never say I run it, but I hold the space in which these wonderful people work together to create some amazing projects. You know, just in January, we were in Tokyo and six of us from Silicon Valley Alliances were working in the same room for five days, wrapping up a seven month program on innovation incubator where we had these 24 people from 10 different countries who worked for this one manufacturing company, working on five impossible projects, presenting to their executives on the last half day. So that was just a joyous celebration of impossible things coming to life. Tell me a little bit more about that, the process of this seven-month program to create innovative new products. How does it work? Yeah. Well, so we've done this 18 times over the last 12 years for this one polymer manufacturing company. And what they do is they select 15 to 25 people that they want to grow into future leaders of their company. They put them in the same room with us for five days. Like we'll go five days in Frankfurt in July and we'll help them get to know each other. They'll bring their ideas because they do pre-work about you know, what's working, what's not working, what's missing. And what, if anything were possible, what would you create that would transform your company to be a truly global successful company? They bring their ideas, and we have an idea marketplace, and they decide which four or five projects would we like to work on that our boss would definitely say no to, and our friends would just roll their eyes, and our family would worry because it's just too ridiculous and unfeasible. <laughs> so those are our requirements for the innovation project. So then they pick the project, we help them do a kickoff, and over the next seven months, we meet them again for five days in Houston or Melbourne, Australia, or someplace else, work on the project some more, teach them some skills, give them some supporting and coaching in between, as well as during the session. And by the end of the seven months, I'll tell you, we've done this 18 times, and by the end of seven months, those projects are just waiting for budget approval. It no longer seems impossible. They just seem like, yeah, it might be a stretch, or yes, there could be some risk. But if we could just get budget for the next phase, we can make some progress on this. Wow. How many of them have gone to fruition? So they've actually gone live, those projects. Oh, thank you for asking. So over the last 18 programs, we've done a total of 77 projects, counting the five that just were launched in January. And I'm telling you, unfortunately, there's no executive support afterwards. There's no budget. There's no resource side of that. The last time I checked, 32 of those projects had either happened, were happening, or had somehow gotten woven into the strategic plan of the company. And some of the wow. projects people don't even remember were birthed in this innovation incubator. Yeah. Wow. That's a pretty good That's... ratio for impossible, isn't it? Yeah, really, really. Really. I love that idea. You start out with something impossible and then make it work. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it's not that hard because if you ask any person that you know, what percent of everything in the entire universe do you personally know? Most people say, yeah, less than 1%. So if I think something's impossible, 
that doesn't mean anything. That just means in the 1% of that I know, I can't think of how to do it. But boy, after seven months of going through our rigorous process of digging into the big why, the big who, stakeholder analysis, and the other tools that we bring, and the innovation and design thinking processes that we use, these things can easily be made into something that's just difficult. So making progress from impossible to just difficult, and some of them end up being, oh my gosh, it's so easy. It's just an expense waiting to be approved. Wow. The important what? thing we start with, we have to mm -hmm. start because we're working with a Japanese company and there are all kinds of issues about risk taking. We start like this. I tell them, okay, I know that it's difficult to take risks and make mistakes. And you must make at least three mistakes every day in this program or you fail. And then they say, what? <laughs> so they have to make mistakes or they fail. And so their brains just short out in their mind. Yeah, I would, I would think that that's probably true for any culture anywhere. I mean, that's right. People are just reluctant to take risk and, you know, embarrassment and failure. And, you know, it's just, it's really hard to do that. That's why Silicon Valley, I think, is so unique and that risk taking is often encouraged. And failure is just another notch on your belt and go forward. Now you've learned something, right? So, exactly. So, so it's like you have to take necessary risks. We must learn from mistakes. We must experiment, prototype, and fail forward. And I just saw some data a couple of weeks ago from Bosch where they released the fact that they had launched something like 170 of these kind of innovative projects. And after the first phase, they killed 70%. And after the second phase, they another 70%, leaving only 14 projects at the end. And you know, what company has the courage to kill that high percentage of their projects, right? Over 90% of their projects, they canceled before they move forward to the final launch. Who is um, that? That's, that's Bosch, B-O-S-C-H. Bosch. Yeah, I think Apple had a similar a similar situation, at least they did in the early 2000s, where they, you know, less than 10% of the projects that were started went on to completion. But it did create yeah. a very innovative environment. So, so I guess that begs the question, why is innovation so important for manufacturing companies? Yeah, well, I mean, manufacturing companies are not the only ones that need innovation. They're, everything is being leveled up. So if we don't continue to innovate in every section of our businesses, we are going to face competition who will. So manufacturing, we need to have more efficient, effective processes to perfect what we're doing now. And we have to think about what's the next generation. You know, AI, machine learning, and all this robot, there are still people who are making things by hand. How are they yeah. going to compete in a world where everything can be done by a robot, which can be programmed effortlessly by someone who's not even a computer programmer? Yeah, I mean, you have to stare in the face of the future, right, and understand how you're going to fit in yeah. or what skills you're going to need to fit in. So but today, when I was I think, working in manufacturing, I mean, if I could just take a minute, yeah. I was working in manufacturing in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California some of the most expensive property in the entire Bay Area. And I told my friends in manufacturing there, you will not have a job in five to 10 years. Find something else to do. There's no way they're going to be doing manufacturing here in this building. And, you know, we had to, in order to preserve the company, we had to get rid of those kinds of jobs and those kinds of sites where it didn't make any sense. And I was always for it saying, hey, it's either some of us have to lose our jobs or all of us. 
And I'm always willing to go and learn the next job or go to the next company if that's going to help the long-term good of the company overall. Well, in, in today's manufacturing environment with global trade wars and, you know, a lot of so many companies dealing with tariffs and, you know, the increasing expense of raw materials and then, of course, the coronavirus and the expected shortages that are going to be out there in manufacturing in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, that there's a lot of bell ringing saying, you know, you better be prepared because we're going to have shortages. So most of these companies should be thinking about an innovative way of what they do for the future or redesigning their global manufacturing strategy to determine if they should actually manufacture in the U.S. or in Mexico mm-hmm. or in Philippines or, you know, what they should do. So how would you recommend that companies move forward to start that process? Well, you know, it's been known for a long time that having the manufacturing footprint somehow mirroring the market footprint is just a good idea. I'm sure that you're more of an expert at that than I am. Uh, You know, let's put our factories in places that are close to the market, and that is going to reduce our transportation costs and the whole value chain. And then we don't have to worry about how much stuff we have shipping across the oceans and what we have to stash into warehouses. And also, I would say, you know, how can we locally source things and locally manufacture things when they're needed? You know, the Dell computer model from way back when is a perfect example. Dell didn't even start building that computer until it was already ordered. So if you can get to the point where it's just in time building or you can source the materials locally, 3D print it, right? You can 3D print everything you need. I mean, some 3D printers can even print another 3D printer when they need another one. So there's a lot of changes in manufacturing that manufacturing people need to be aware of in order to stay abreast with the changes. And as transportation costs and the challenges of transportation, such as this virus or other kinds of threats that happen when you're shipping things across the world, increase, I think it's going to make more sense to do things locally where things are being consumed. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a sustainability theme as well, which I think most companies are interested in pursuing. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a um, farmer's market approach to manufacturing, right? You go and buy yeah. vegetables at the farmer's market down the street. You don't get them shipped from another continent. Right, right. Well, <laughs> but, but, you go to the grocery store, you get that. stuff from Peru. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I'm concerned right. about that because when goods and services cross borders, bullets don't. And so, I mean, having the supply chain integrated across the globe has actually been very good, I think, for the world to come together as a whole and to help promote peace in the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, Kimberly, but thank you so much for joining us. It was really interesting. For our audience, you can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.com womenandmanufacturing.com, spelled W-O-M-E-N-A-N-D-M-F-G.com. And Kimberly, can you please give us your contact information? Yes, my email is Kimberly at SiliconValleyAlliances.com, or you can reach me at Kimberly at Weefling.com, which is my first name at my last name.com. I'd be very delighted to talk with anybody who would like to explore this further. And thank you, Uh, Rosemary, for keeping me in mind for your podcast and for inviting me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates at reshoringinstitute.org. 
and visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM Podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.